as we embark upon this verse-by-verse exposition of the book of 1 Peter, the very first message being this morning, I want to begin with an attempt to understand something of the man we know as Peter. Look at your Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The Scripture says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Stop there. I want to know something about this man, Peter. And I want you to know about him as well. Many of us would say that we know who the Apostle Peter is, but I think we would do well to dig a little bit more deeply this morning into the character and impact of this man. As I have said to you before, often when I go into a bookstore and pick up a book, one of the first things that I do is I read the back jacket or the back section or wherever there is a biography of that particular individual that gives me insight into what gives this author the onus to write this particular book. What qualifies him? Who is this person who is authoring these pages? And that's what I want to do this morning regarding this man, Peter. I think we would do well to find out a little bit more about him because he represents so much of what we similarly experience in the Christian life. I believe that all who make up the pages, uh, excuse me, I believe uh, that of all who make up the pages of the New Testament, I seem, at least in my own life, to be like Peter the most. You may find yourself in that same category seeing Peter as he is revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture and saying to yourself, I'm like that. That applies to me. I seem to respond in similar ways. And I want this morning to do a couple of distinct things with regard to understanding the unfolding of the character of this man's life. I think in a couple of ways, one, to rejoice in the grace of God's transforming love. You look at Peter's life, you look at the earlier portion of that which we read about in the New Testament, and then you look at the latter part of his life and you see a man who was transformed by God's great grace. And I think also, as you see this life being transformed, you realize that God also gifted Peter with the grace of repentance. And I think that's another reason for studying the character of this man and to find out before we actually go into the text of Scripture who this man really is and how he was transformed and for what did he repent. Peter is often seen as the impetuous one, the one that brings us at odds with what we see regarding the perfect character of Christ. What do I really mean about this impetuousness of Peter. Well, listen to one description of Peter given to us by Edward Donnelly. He writes this, The Gospels are full of Peter. No other disciple is mentioned so often or has so much to say. 
No one confesses Christ so boldly or argues with Him so persistently. Peter is commended more highly than his companions and, apart from Judas, rebuked more strikingly. He is a jumble of contradictions, confused and clear-sighted, exasperating and lovable, boastful and humble, cowardly and courageous. Above all, he comes across as an intensely human figure. Of all the twelve, his personality is most vividly drawn so that he stands out from the others, a focus of our attention. We feel that we know Peter and can identify with him in both his strengths and his weaknesses. I don't know about you, but as I look at the life of Peter, I can identify with this man. I can so relate to that description. It's as though someone has been reading my own mail, understanding who I am. And maybe you can relate, too, to this man and his life. In Hugh Martin's classic sketch of the life of Peter, a man by the name of Neander writes this, "...the influences of transforming grace..." always attaching themselves to the constitutional character of an individual, purify and ennoble it. So, in this instance, what Peter became by the power of the divine life was in a measure determined by his natural peculiarities, a capacity for action, rapid in its movements, seizing with a firm grasp on its object, and carrying on his designs with ardor was his leading characteristic, by which he affected so much in the service of the gospel. But the fire of his powerful nature needed first to be transformed by the flame of divine love, and to be refined from the impurity of selfishness, to render him undaunted in the publication of the gospel. By the natural constitution of his mind, he was indeed disposed to surrender himself at the moment entirely to the impression which seized him, without being turned aside by those considerations which would have moved many minds. But he was easily misled by a rash of self-confidence to say more and to venture more than he could accomplish. And though he quickly and ardently seized on an object, he allowed himself too easily to relinquish it by yielding to the force of another impression. That's Peter. He was at once able to to seize on the moment, to capture it, uh, to do, as we say, jumping on an issue with all fours. But just as it would seem that he would not let go... He would be so easily misled, sometimes by his own self-confidence, the writer says. It's true. It's really a carbon copy of so many of us jumping at an issue, jumping on an object, jumping on that which we believe is so very important, and then without really thinking issues through, saying things and doing things and being impetuous and later realizing that we should not have done or said what we have done or said. And I think by looking at the author of First and Second Peter like this, in the beginning, 
gives us all a sense of who this man is as we sweep through these epistles. First Peter is abounding in the character of this man. I want to begin this morning by showing some of these characteristics of Peter and what strengths and weaknesses he had and what can encourage all of us to both emulate and learn from him. Edward Donnelly brings it down to the lowest shelf for us when he writes this, What we are looking for is a portrait of discipleship, which will be at the same time inspiring and realistic. We need to read of those who have advanced beyond us in their experience of the Savior and whom, therefore, we can safely follow. Yet they should not be so far beyond us that we cannot reach them. We must be able to identify with them, to feel that they are human beings like ourselves. Above all, we are looking for people who demonstrate in a striking way the character-changing grace of Christ. He says we can do no better in this regard than consider the life of Peter. Here is an infallible, Spirit-inspired biography. Truthful, balanced, helpful. The record of his relationship with Jesus provides us with a memorable illustration of what discipleship involves. That's so true. And as an outline, I want us to consider a couple of facets of his life which will show both you and me what kind of person he was and what we should become as a result of looking at this life, how the Lord has shaped him and what the Lord is doing to shape us into what we must become for God's glory. I want to talk about a couple of those. I don't know that I'm going to be able to go much past the first one this morning because the first one is so very, very important. And the character principle or sketch that I'd like to paint for you is this. Peter became a man who was at one time an unredeemed Jew who became a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. To boil that down, we might say it like this. From an unredeemed Jew to a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I know that that doesn't sound particularly profound. It may not even sound new to you. You may have understood and have walked through these concepts for some years, especially those of you who have spent many years in Christ. Nevertheless, we should all be reminded, even as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, I desire to stir you up by way of reminder. He wants to show them not only the principles but also what the Lord has done in his own life. And we would do all well to listen to this man Peter and all that he experienced. I'm going to put it, I think, in such a way for you this morning that you may not at first glance realize all of these pieces of data coming to the forefront in your own minds so that you might understand Peter in a way that maybe you haven't understood him before. Let's dive in. Let's talk about this man, Peter, from an unredeemed Jewishness to a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. One of the first, if not the first thing we notice about Peter as we look at our New Testaments is his encounter with Jesus Christ. And for a picture of this, I want you to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Exodus. 
specifically in Exodus chapter 12. This is going to be important for us because it's going to set the stage for how we understand this man, Peter, and what was in his mind as a Jewish person. And I think by the end of our time this morning, you're going to see that this particular passage and what this passage called for was in Peter's mind in a major way as he penned 1 Peter. For every Jew, beginning almost with virtually their first level of existence, Moses told them in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, these words. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This mouth shall be the beginning uh, this month, excuse me, shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its leg, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire." Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Of course, this is the institution of the sacrificial system. The Passover lamb is to be a, a physical, but obviously a metaphorical reality. God is saying, even by telling them to keep your staff in your hand, keep your shoes on your feet, be ready, be vigilant. This angel of death is going to come. You need to be ready. You need to be, be ready for all of the things that will befall you, but I will not let ultimately a plague befall you, that is, kill you or destroy you. But I want you to be ready. And I want you to execute this sacrifice because I want you to know that this is going to be not only for the Egyptians and this angel of death idea, but it will be forever a sign that God has passed over the sins of His people 
by a sacrifice. Not just with the idea of its first application in Egypt, but also a forever resemblance of what God is doing in passing over sins. That's the point. And from that point on, Peter and every other faithful Jew sacrificed in exactly this way, following the word of the Lord. That's what Peter knew. That was his life. That's how he grew up. That's all he'd ever experienced. And that's his understanding. And ultimately, if you put some of the other Old Testament passages together, you find out that God was sometimes implicitly like here, at other times explicitly telling them there is going to be a Messiah, a man, who is going to come and he is going to be the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice. And Peter, as a devout Jew, Orthodox Jew, a studied Jew, would understand that while they were performing that sacrifice, they were also looking to that ultimate sacrifice. Uh, they may not and certainly didn't understand all of the implications of that. No one could have. But they understood that a Messiah was coming and that one day all of these sacrifices would no longer be necessary. That is, if they understood their Old Testament as God was teaching them. Some of them didn't understand that, did they? Jews today don't understand that. They continue that sacrificial system, at least to some degree, not by way of this uh, temple sacrifice because the temple's been destroyed, but at least in their own minds they're saying, we need to continue the idea of sacrifice because the Messiah has not yet come. We know the Messiah has come. We know it's Christ. But at least in Peter's day... They were looking for that, and because the temple was there, because it had not been destroyed, they actually came to a place of giving these animals for sacrifice. It would have been something that Peter would have thought about a great deal, prayed about all his life. And when he came of age, he became a fisherman. And he came across a man by the name of John. You know him as John the Baptist. And somehow, in the midst of this busy work as a fisherman, although folks like F.B. Meyer, and maybe he's correct, would say the reason why Peter and Andrew and James and John had a little bit more time on their hands when Jesus ultimately did approach them was that the year he approached them was the sabbatical year, the year in which they were to cease from doing work. And so maybe it was that they also took more time at that season of life to learn and be discipled in the truths of Judaism like their ancestors. And so, somehow in the midst of this busy work as a fisherman with his father and brother Andrew, he became a learning disciple of John the Baptist. You say, that's interesting, I didn't know that. Well, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, and you'll find out that that's precisely who Andrew and Peter followed. Of course, Peter's name at that point was not Peter. It was Simon. Simon is, of course, the Hebrew term. Peter is a Greek term, really taken from what Jesus actually said to him, which was probably in Aramaic, which is translated for us Cephas. That's why sometimes Peter is referred to as Simon, sometimes Cephas, sometimes Peter. 
Simon and Andrew were Jews. And they had apparently at some point been influenced and had become disciples of John the Baptist. How? Look at chapter 1, verse 35 of John. Again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. Not Simon at that point, but Andrew, his brother, and another. Verse 36, And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, that is John the Baptist, the Lamb of God. Now do you think that that would have conjured up something in the minds of these Jewish men? Having had this sacrificial system over and over and over again for generations, for years and years and years, looking for the Lamb of God, sacrificing in the system these animals, but always hearing in the back of their minds the Old Testament prophets and others saying, The Lamb of God is coming! The Lamb of God is coming! Behold! And now the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, says, The Lamb of God is here. Here He is. Might you imagine as I that they would have been shocked, dismayed, confused? What, is, what does my mentor, John the Baptist, mean? What, what does he mean by this? The Lamb of God? And he's referring to a man? He's pointing at someone? Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. In other words, John said, here's the Lamb of God. Two of his disciples say, who is this? What does he really mean? And they hear Jesus speak, and they started following him. Verse 38, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you going? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. Wouldn't wouldn't that have been an amazing day for a Jewish person to spend with a rabbi who is intriguing to them? They don't know who he is, but they've just heard their own rabbi, John the Baptist, their own teacher say, this is the Lamb of God. And then they hear Jesus teach, and they're mesmerized, and so they want to follow Him, and so they come and they spend a whole day together. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And Andrew must have had the ride of his life that day. He must have had an incredible journey, an incredible teaching opportunity. I might imagine that he would have asked the question, when my mentor, when my rabbi, John the Baptist, when he said about you that you're the Lamb of God, what did he mean? What what does this mean, you're the Lamb of God? He, He might have even initially had this thought in his mind, is this blasphemy? Is is this blasphemy? There is a Lamb of God coming. Surely this man isn't that one. But they spent a whole day and there was dialogue and Jesus taught them. We don't know what He taught them, uh, but He might have said this very thing to them. Yes, I am the Lamb of God. And whatever occurred, we know this, Andrew was saved. Now, maybe it wasn't 
in the ultimate sense of being saved, because surely some of these disciples did not truly understand these things until the Holy Spirit came. But you realize that in the transition between the Old and New Testament, they were believing everything up to the level of their understanding. God was in the process, as as we would see in John chapter 6, of drawing these men to Himself. He's drawing Andrew to himself. And notice what Andrew does, verse 41. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Apparently Andrew was convinced. He believed, at least to some degree. And he brought Simon Peter, according to verse 42, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. Folks, don't misunderstand that. Uh, Don't just lightly read over that. Jesus looked at him and apparently, without ever having met him, said, I know already who you are. I know who you are. You're Simon, the son of John. Can you imagine that Peter would have said to himself in his own mind, He knows me. This, This is no mere man. He knows me. And not only does He know me, but He's now just given me by some level of authority a new name. You are Simon, the son of John. Simon Barjonas, the son of John. That's Barjonas. But you shall be called Cephas. That's the Aramaic term, which is translated in Greek, Petras. This is, this is Peter. This is an amazing thing. And this is Peter's introduction to Jesus himself. And it's also, by the way, an amazing transition. Because Simon Peter and Andrew, and we might assume James and John as well, are the disciples of John the Baptist. But clearly there's a transition going on here. Clearly, underneath the pages of the New Testament, we find that Jesus is now compiling disciples of His own. He's calling them to Himself. Later, He'll call them officially. He'll go up to the mountain. He'll spend all night praying there. And He'll come down and say, it's you and you and you. And He chooses 12 of them. But here, there's a transition going on. It's John the Baptist's disciples. And at least a few of them are now converting, as it were, to being followers of Jesus. Why? Because John the Baptist himself is saying, you go and you follow him because he is the Lamb of God. He's the one to whom I've been pointing. I'm just the forerunner. I'm just an attendant of the bridegroom. This is the one for whom you should look. He's arrived. He's here. And we know that as Peter continually spent time with Jesus, he did become increasingly aware that Jesus was more than a mere man. Look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 1 and we'll see this. How is it that Peter comes to know this Jesus? How is it that he comes to know this rabbi? Well, here's what the New Testament tells us. Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Now after Jesus had been taken into custody... Uh, Excuse me. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, the Bible says, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the high, with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. So you can see that there is discipleship which is now beginning. They're beginning, as they had with John the Baptist, been learning and growing. Now they're learning and growing through another master, the ultimate one. And as he began to teach, according to verse 21, verse 22 says, They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So his teaching was marvelous. It was an amazing teaching, profound, authoritative. If that weren't enough, verse 23, Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? This demon inside of this man started crying out and acknowledging that Jesus was a higher authority. Uh, have you come to destroy us? Uh, that means that you have the power to destroy. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Can you imagine the people sitting in the pews? And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. He did exactly, precisely what the authoritative teacher commanded him to do. This was no mere man. With the result, verse 27, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. His teaching ministry, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. What power! And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. I can well imagine. This is, this is a new guy on the block. This isn't, this isn't like the old guys. He's authoritative in his teaching. He's powerful. He's casting out these unclean spirits. And look at chapter 2, verse 29. And remember, excuse me, yes, uh, chapter 1, verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now remember, Simon Peter is hearing all of this. He's in the synagogue with his brother Andrew, with James and John, they're taking it all in. These are no doubt part of those who are asking the question, what is this? Who is this man? How does he command these unclean spirits? They're taking all of this in. They come out of the synagogue. They come into the house of Simon and Andrew. Jesus comes into the very place where they've been living with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And the Bible says, immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to, and he came to her and raised her up taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. 
Now this, my friends, would have given Peter a tremendous perspective of Jesus both as teacher and healer. He would never have come across anyone like this before. Not even John the Baptist. Exceeding even his ministry, his discipleship, his teaching. But still, he was a disciple of John. Who could this man, Jesus, really be? And maybe the question comes, would Peter have a greater loyalty still to John the Baptist than to Jesus himself? Well, maybe that was in their minds. Apparently, it was in the minds of some of the disciples of John and maybe even some of the disciples of Jesus. You say, how so? We'll look at John chapter 3 and we'll see. John chapter 3, verse 22. You see what I'm doing? I'm, I'm painting you a portrait of what's in Peter's mind. What's in the mind of these people is this transition between following John the Baptist and following Jesus. What's this all about? Verse 22 of chapter 3 of John. After these things, Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judea, and there He was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Aon near Salim because there was much water there. By the way, it's a great verse for Baptists. Much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. They had ceremonial washings, did the Jews, and now this was a new thing. This was a baptism. This was an immersion. Verse 26, And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi... He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now, what should we read into that statement? What's going on? Who is he? Should we, should we acknowledge him? Should we follow him? Should we follow you? Uh, is he with you? Is he against you? Are you for him? Are you against him? Well, what's going on? We, we saw that you had testified about him. But now he's baptizing and you're baptizing. We're seeing a potential conflict here. Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. What a humble statement. I can't even have the ministry that I have unless it's been given to me. I I didn't think this up on my own. I didn't initiate this. This is not my deal. This is, this is not the John the Baptist Evangelistic Ministries Incorporated. Verse 28, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ. Pretty plain. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. But I've been sent ahead of Him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. In other words, I've heard his voice. The baptism has occurred. There was a, there was a visitation from God the Father Himself. There was a baptism scene in which John the Baptist, possibly only himself, not even the crowd, hearing a direct revelation from God that this Jesus, whom the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove, heard directly the voice of God the Father saying what? This is my Son. Listen to Him. That may be a reference only in the crowd to God speaking directly to John the Baptist. 
John, this is him. I'm pointing him out to you. This is my son. Listen to him. He's the one for whom you have been telling people. There he is. He's the son of God. John knew that. John knew it from that moment on. If he ever doubted it, if he ever wondered, he knew from that moment on that Jesus was the one whom God told him directly and saw it by a confirming sign of the Holy Spirit descending on him as though the Holy Spirit was involved in the process as well, and he was. And that's how he can say, I'm not the Christ. I know people follow me. I know I have disciples, but I'm not the Christ. I've been sent ahead of him, and I rejoice because I heard his words. This joy of mine, he says, has been made full. I couldn't be happier. Boy, isn't that great? One guy says about another, I couldn't be happier that he's mightier than I. I couldn't be happier that he has a greater ministry. I couldn't be more full in my joy. And in fact, verse 30, he must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth. Jesus came from heaven. I've come from the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. I told you he was coming. I told you he was here. I even pointed out and I said, Behold, the Lamb of God! God has sent and is now speaking the words. Jesus Christ, when He speaks, He speaks for God. God has so affirmed Him that He's given Him the Spirit, verse 34, without measure. Amazing statement. Jesus Christ has been given the Holy Spirit when He was incarnated as a man without measure. The fullness of the Spirit of God resides with Christ. And John can't resist. Verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He's talking about this Messiah. He's talking about a day coming when the Christ would come and he says he's here. And by the way, if you believe in him, you're saved. If you don't, you're not. God's wrath abides on you who do not affirm that Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. So, at least by this time, Peter must be saying to himself, I must must move my allegiance away from John the Baptist. My brother and I must now follow this Jesus. And, And maybe, even at this point, however, the disciples of John the Baptist are still unsure. But if they are unsure, maybe Matthew chapter 11 covers it all. Matthew 11. This is, this is an amazing statement. It's one in which I think the answer is forever given. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist knows, at least in my judgment, that his ministry is over. Now he wants to ensure that his own disciples, including Andrew and Peter, are fully convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what does he do? According to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, it says, Now when John, while imprisoned, and you know why he was, in, why he was imprisoned? Because he spoke out against the wife of Herod, right? It was unlawful for Herod to take Herodias as his wife, being the wife of his brother Philip. It was wrong 
It was against God's law. John spoke out about it as a faithful prophet. He was imprisoned. And while he was imprisoned, he heard the words or the works of Christ, and he sent word, notice this, very important, by his disciples. Very key idea there. He sent word by his disciples. You say, well, that's easy. He was in prison. He couldn't go himself. There's something more going on here. He sent word by his disciples so that his disciples could hear. He could have sent any number of people, but he sent his disciples. Why? Verse 3, and he sent his disciples to ask this question, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You say... That's because John the Baptist was languishing there in that prison and he didn't quite know or understand if Jesus was the real deal and he wanted to know himself. Maybe he knew that his death was imminent. Maybe he knew that he needed the assurance and the answers to those questions. I don't think that at all. I don't think that at all. Why? On the very basis of Scripture itself. Scripture said, I am telling you, God the Father, John the Baptist, you need to know this. Jesus is the Son of God. Listen to him. How much clearer can it be for John the Baptist? He knew that by direct revelation of God. The Holy Spirit descends. It's so clear. It's not for John the Baptist that he's asking that question. It's for whom? His disciples. It's for Peter. It's for Andrew. It's for these men who need to know. And John the Baptist wants to make it absolutely certain to his disciples that they now must follow the one to whom he has been pointing. If you had a at a discipler, if you had a master, a rabbi, a teacher, and he was now languishing in a prison, you might say to yourself, to whom shall we go? Who's going to teach us? Who do we follow? And the answer from John the Baptist, you go ask Christ. You go ask Him if He's the expected one, and then when He gives you the answer, then you follow Him. John knows he's going to give the right answer. And what does Jesus say? Just look at my life. Look at my deeds. Look at my words. The, the, the lame are, are brought back to wholeness. The blind see. The deaf hear. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Did John the Baptist do that? No. Preached the gospel. But God withheld, apparently, certain things for him so that he couldn't be confused. Even John the Baptist, even after he died, people were saying, he's, a, he's the prophet Elijah, he's the one to come, he's, he's come back to life. Didn't Herod say that? He was fearful, he was fearful of the people, he was fearful of their response. He thought that maybe even John the Baptist had arisen from the dead. That's how powerful he was. But it's also where God wants to say, I'm moving him off the scene Jesus is now there. There's no need for the forerunner. And John the Baptist knows that. He knows he's going to die. And he says to his own disciples, you go, you talk, you ask, you listen. And when you listen, you listen well. And it was just, of course, as you know, a short time that John was dead. In fact, I believe this to be the case because of verse 7 of Matthew 11. As these men were going away, going away from what Jesus had just said, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. 
I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John knew. And Jesus knew that John knew. And Jesus knew that John was asking for his own disciples to give their full and complete allegiance to Jesus, the master teacher. He's your new discipler. You go after him. You follow him. I'm off the scene. My days are done. My ministry's over. And John says, that's it. And Jesus says, but he is one of the greatest. In fact, he is the greatest. Born among women. Why? Because he's one of the most humble He's not usurping the place of Jesus' ministry. He's not saying, now wait a minute, disciples. Don't don't follow just yet. Well, maybe I'm unsure myself. He knows. And Jesus is speaking of His exaltation because of His humility. And Jesus, I think, comes right out of this and is saying what He's saying because He's being sensitive to John's ministry. And if you read your New Testament chronologically, you know that Jesus even doesn't fully expand His own ministry until after John had been taken into custody. That's what Matthew 4 says explicitly, Matthew 4.12. Jesus waited until John the Baptist was off the scene. And now it was that Peter and Andrew and James and John and the others who will be called are now to give their full allegiance to Jesus Christ. And this is all in Peter's mind, beloved. All the way back from this sacrificial system in Exodus 12, all the way through all of these events, including hearing this powerful teaching and seeing his own mother-in-law, who was sick unto death, raised up, seeing this, this unclean spirit completely taken out of a man. This is, this is enough to convince Peter, and it does. Peter continues to try to understand the uniqueness of this man, Jesus. There's a lot more to know, but he knows at least what he knows at this point. And it was only after this break, this transition in the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus himself, that Peter proclaims that Jesus is certainly God's Son. That's what he says in chapter 14 of Matthew. You remember it? There was this this water incident, this idea that Jesus is walking on the water. And and Peter sees this figure and he thinks it's the Lord, verse 28, and he says, command me to come to you. And he says, come. And he goes on the water. He's frightened. frightened. He begins to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. And what does the Lord do? Exactly that. Saves him. Peter could have died right there on the spot. He could have drowned in a moment. So what does he do? He he cries out instinctively to the only one that he believes can save him. And by the word, by the way, this word Lord, this is master. This is this is the word used of God the Father. Lord, God, save me. And Jesus did, and they went into the boat, and the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, the Bible says, verse 33. Peter, the spokesman, you are certainly God's son. You're the son of God. 
or the Greek text, you're God the Son. You're equal with God. And then you go to chapter 16 of Matthew, and when Christ asks the question in verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Again, uh, this is to uh, try to quiz them, question them. What is their allegiance? Do they really know me? Do they really understand me? He knows the answer, but he wants them to know the answer. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's just, just the general people. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. You see, maybe there's still a question in somebody's mind. And others say, no, Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you, you disciples, Who do you say that I am? Who's the spokesman? Peter, verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now you say, boy, you've built an impressive case. Does it continue like this for Peter? (laughs) No. And we'll go to that next time. It's, it's not like that. I wish I could have built a case that said, you know, from the very point that, that Peter was approached by John the Baptist, he followed him, and he studied, and he learned, and he understood from Exodus, he understood that God was visiting him, he understood that God was saying to him, a Messiah will come, he understood all of that, he understood these things, and he responded to his belief, and he walked with this Messiah to come, both in his mind and then reality in the flesh, for all the rest of his days. But that's not the way it was, was it? What happened? Well, we know that Peter denied the Lord. And you could say, how? How did he deny the Lord? I mean, you've built this impressive scenario that that Peter's been told, he's seen the teaching, the healings, his own mother-in-law, John the Baptist saying, follow him. What is the deal here? Well, challenge, faith, understanding, sin, Satan, the world. It's always a challenge to belief, isn't it? Let me ask you the question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world? Don't answer so hastily. Because if you were to look at your life, if you were to survey who you are, would you answer that question fully and completely and obediently? Yes, He's taken away my sin. Do you live in light of that sin being taken away? Do you live with a humility like John the Baptist? A submission? Or do you vacillate? Do you wonder? Well, you're in good company. Peter did. And even though he was an unredeemed Jew, and even though we might have to try to figure out where he is and what is his spiritual condition and what is his state and is he really a believer at this point and when does he become a believer and and when he says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Bible does say, yes, it has been revealed to you not by human initiation but by God Himself. God is declaring it to you. God is revealing it to you. Yes, that's all true. But then why does Peter deny? Why does he deny? Why does he say... 
I don't know the man. Why does he curse? Why does he want to be separated from Christ? Well, those are all good questions. And the only way we're going to answer those is to find out more of these passages, and we'll do that next time. As we start this book of 1 Peter, I hope that I've painted a picture of you of a man who wasn't not only perfect, but who had some really, really massively important issues in his life. Believing, character, humility, pride, impetuousness. There's a lot going on in Peter's psyche, and there's a lot going on in ours as well. How do we know? How do we believe? How do we respond? Those are questions that we must answer and be of good courage. That's exactly what Peter has designed for his first epistle. It's one designed not just with suffering, but one of faith, believing, asking the question, is God to be trusted? Doesn't Peter say, though you do not see Him, you what? You believe in Him. And though you do not see Him now, you you place your confidence in Him. How is it that we, as the Bible Church of Little Rock, individual members, are saying about one another, we are believers in someone we have never seen? You say, well, that's even beyond Peter's grasp. Yes, it is, because Peter saw the living Christ. God spoke to him directly. God revealed this to him. So, if that's Peter, then how am I going to not stumble and fall? Yes, that's true. But... As God gave Peter the Holy Spirit, and as you see it unfolded in the book of Acts, God gives us the Holy Spirit as well. And He bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and that we do cry out, Abba, Father, and that we do come to a place of believing that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Lamb of God, the one whom God has brought to us to take away the sin of the world. Do you believe that? Do you live in light of that? Do you see God crushing your pride, crushing that impetuousness, crushing that character to to rise as a phoenix out of the ashes, a character that obeys Jesus Christ because you say He is that Lamb, He is my Lord, He is my Rabbi, my Teacher? That's what Peter's going to tell us. There's a, a bit to go to understand Peter, but this is a good start. This is a great biography. I wish we could, at the end of every book that we read, read a biography like this, not just one sentence. Not not just a little paragraph. But we could say, this is the guy's trials. This is the gal's temptations. These are the things that brought them to this level. And sometimes in the book itself they tell us, but usually not completely, usually not fully, usually not with the nuances that we've studied here. There are more things to study about this man, Peter. He is fascinating. And if he's like you, there's a lot to learn because he's a lot like me and I have a lot to learn. I'm going to love this study because it's going to tell us how a man who believed to that level could fall to that level and then rise to that level. This is, this is a great study and I hope you'll be, with, you'll be with us for it. Let's pray together. Father, there is... Nothing but joy in my heart. Because this is a man, Peter, who is someone who loves you. 
And even though he had to go through a time of transition in his own life, trying to find out who you really were and whether or not his own former mentor, John the Baptist, was to be departing from the scene. He was one who had great character, great strength, but Lord, also someone who was in need of your chiseling, your shaping and refining, and that's ourselves. And we pray that you would, through this study, take us far beyond just the words of First Peter itself, but into the Gospels and other places to show us this man, to show us why he is to be the biographer of the things that he's written. Father, we ask that you would make us changed people for what we see and hear. I pray that you would make us and mold us and shape us, even with all of our faults, so that we might be chiseled ourselves into the likeness of Christ. That was Peter's goal. That's our goal. And we know it only comes by acknowledging the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the privilege of being seated here every Sunday to learn at the feet of this dear man. Pray that you would bring it to us for Christ's sake. Amen.